Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Aton. Hello. Hey, Carl. How are you? Honestly, pretty distressed because I was just reading a two-week-old press release about Salesforce's new streaming service. <laughs> what? No. Where's the joke? Where is this going? No, the, legitimately. What? Also, if I had a gun to your head right now and your life depended on it, you 100% could guess what the streaming service was named. Salesforce Plus? Yes. Wait, what do you mean a sales? What? I'm Googling this right now as you speak. I, my face is very confused. Salesforce. I mean exactly what I'm saying. Announcing Salesforce Plus, a new streaming service for live experiences and original content series. We're not going back. We're creating the future now, just as brands like Disney, Netflix, and Peloton have done with streaming services for consumers. Salesforce Plus is providing an always-on business media platform that builds trusted relationships with customers and a sense of belonging for the business community. Is there like an April Fool's Day? I'm not aware. (laughs) In the middle of August. I was gonna say that I was just thinking about Salesforce last week because they just closed their Slack. Right, yes. Uh, deal. But the giant announced taking a leap into streaming media with Salesforce Plus. Digital media network with a focus on video. Eh? Okay, so likelihood you'll uh, subscribe? You'll you just, you just use your mother's login <laughs> for Salesforce Plus. <laughs> yeah, I am... Uh... Not gonna be subscribing. What what's what's the deal here? Is it like a if you're a Salesforce CRM customer, they, they throw it in for free? Or business professional is this gonna be like LinkedIn <laughs> where if you have a discretionary fund where you can expense it, you get LinkedIn premium, otherwise you don't bother? Like what is this? I love this. This sounds like one of those things where it's like I build an AI to write a press release. Yes. In a in a QA with Colin Fleming, Salesforce SVP of Global Brand Marketing, he sees it as a way to evolve the content the company has been sharing all along. Quote, as a result of the pandemic, we looked at the media landscape where people are consuming content and decided the days of white papers in a business-to-business setting were no longer interesting to people. We're staring at a cookie-less future and looking at the consumer world, we reflected on that Salesforce and ask, why shouldn't we thinking about this too? What? That would sounds say, fake. Would you see a cookie-less future? That's literally what it says. We're staring at a cookie-less future. How does that sound? I mean, I get where they're coming. I mean, that is I true, get where they're coming but, from, but ad cookies and original content plays are not a one-to-one. <laughs> and especially in the CRM business? Salesforce... Everyone I know who's ever worked for Salesforce is very happy and was very happy about their time at Salesforce. But I truly cannot, as someone who spent three years of their lives at AT&T in like the, the depths of hell with network operations, <laughs> Salesforce sounds boring to me. Like, no thank you, please. He's a fellow, the first ever SaaS company. Mark Mark Benioff is an interesting character. Oh, he is an interesting character. Very, I mean, very successful what he's built in the in the shade of Oracle and everything that they've been able to do. It's just yeah. interesting that they're going into streaming. 
Yeah. And they have the largest phallic symbol in San Francisco. So way to go. Take that coit with, tower. With dancers at the top. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take that coit tower. That's great. I love when you just open episodes with these types of bombshells. I feel like the last time you did this, it was with Cartoon All-Stars. It totally was. Which became a thing. So I are we doing a live commentary when Salesforce Plus launches? <laughs> that would be great Like to do a just watch the new original programming. Are they going to do a Netflix binge style? Or is it like the drum up anticipation week to week for shows such as <laughs> Connections, show, which showcases some of the most innovative marketers from companies like IBM, Levi's, and GoFundMe? Mm, it sounds thrilling. <laughs> thrilling. Saturday, Saturday night. What do you want to do for day night? How about Connections on Salesforce Plus? I, I do wonder, looking at someone, what was the first plus, officially? Disney? I think it was Disney. It must well, be also funny. Like it, the ESPN Plus brand. technically was before that, wasn't it? I guess. Or was it ESPN it was called, Go? I was going to say, it, was, it wasn't Go. But maybe it was like ESPN Pro or something different. It doesn't matter. It's just funny where it's going. Can we do an episode at some point about whatever the hell Disney Go was. Do you remember this? No. So yeah, I was it in the US by then. For about a decade. So this was a late Eisner project. Mm -hmm. Which tells you a lot about it. Yes, right. And it's, it's a late Eisner Disney technology product, which tells you even more about it. Mm -hmm. So Eisner essentially looked at, re remember way back when, when AOL, before you had Google and search engines, you navigated with keywords that took you places. Right. Eisner wanted like Disney AOL, essentially. So it was this platform called go.com, which I think they acquired. Don't hold me to that. But it's this platform where they wanted essentially a Disney AOL, where all of Disney's stuff would be there and like long-term plans would be like streaming and whatnot. But of course, this is the early thousands. So they didn't have the operational capacity or data capacity to be able to do that. But for a like up until the early 2010s, if you went to anything on Disney's website, including like their HR portal or the parks websites, it was always Disney. Disney.go.com. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's it. That's funny. So the entire, until recently. Yes, until very yeah. recently, the entire yeah. web like one and 2.0 Disney platform was built entirely on Go.com, a failed AOL competitor. Okay, so last time you did a test live, you called a sex line. Yes. I'm just I'm just trying to do Disney.go.com, and hopefully this will not enrage either of our partners. <laughs> okay, Disney.go.com at least sends you to Disney.com. Oh, which is a crazy website. I've never been here. Did you know that Disney has a Disney.com? I mean... Disney, but... Disney Plus Original, Disney Bundle, Parks and Travel, Movies, Shop, more... How many people do you think go to this website? So, I remember back when I was in fourth grade, we had to do a project on the rainforest. And it was fourth grade, so I this was 2002. So, at that point, that's right at the dawn of search engines in, in that are usable. Like, I think that was the Ask Jeeves era. So, a research strategy that a lot of nine-year-olds used was just typing on a word.com and I remember 
vividly, this was before I had any concept of what Amazon.com was, a lot of people coming in and complaining that they couldn't find rainforest facts because Amazon.com <laughs> was a shopping website. It's the cutest thing. And rainforest.com is a restaurant. <laughs> what the hell? And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> where you can't, whereas Amazon.com employs... I, it's one of those things that I, I do think if you ask a newer generation, they might uh, like stop before knowing it's a river in South America first. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, that's a bit like uh, my age hit me in the head <laughs> with a bat. That's <laughs> like just saying, ah, the newer generation. <laughs> anyway. The rate we're going, Amazon.com will outlast the Amazon rainforest, so we're good. I would say even that Amazon.com is actively... Uh-huh, I would Amazon. too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's crazy. The Amazon River and the Amazon rainforest. Anyway. So speaking um, of rivers... <laughs> nice. You want to talk about Jungle Cruise? Let's talk about Jungle Cruise, which moves from the Amazon to the Nile, as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. So Jungle Cruise, which we talked a couple of weeks ago when it got first released, it was the second movie, I believe, where they released simultaneous numbers for Box Office and Disney Plus after yep. Black Widow. And it doing fine. I think it did the 30-30-30. 30 domestic, 30 international, 30 in Disney Plus. I'm not speculating that, you know, it was probably good enough. Uh, it's been chugging along. I, I, we're back to our regular scheduled programming of Carl and Nathan talk about movies they haven't seen. But <laughs> their performance has actually, I guess, surprised the media landscape. They've officially reached $100 million in the domestic box office. Which is... How do you think about it? Like, I get it that in this you know, counting season that we made up, it's a cool point because you move from two units to three. But from a, again, put it in perspective in the business, is, is 100 million kind of a bar that is, oh, this 100 million domestic is kind of a bar? Or is it now, honestly, like 500 international, like total is kind of the thing? I never know if people are just repeating things that were important 10 years ago, and I don't want to fall into that. I think right now, anything goes. Nothing means anything. I, it was a few weeks ago where people were decrying the death of, of theaters because Suicide Squad didn't make $30 million and then saying Free Guy was saving theaters because Free Guy made almost $30 million. Nothing, nothing matters right now. That said, I think this is certainly a film that needs to clear 500 for Disney to be happy, like in a normal world. This mm -hmm. thing is, this thing costs $200 million somehow. The Rock... I hear the that. Rock, a, a boulder is involved. Yeah, the, the Rock, Emily Blunt, a long production process or pre-production process and development hell that they wrote off here after a few decades. Because I think, let's see, it was until, technically in pre-production for fifteen years until they right. were able to actually get it off the round. Because it was, let's see, no, okay. Yeah, it was 2004, it was announced in the wake of Pirates of the Caribbean. So, and then in 2011, it was originally announced that Tom Hanks and Tim Allen would be the stars. Really? 
Yeah. So this thing has. So gone it through. was a Toy Story spin-off. <laughs> Thank you. So this is something that's been on and off in the works for, like you said, over fifteen years. I'm sure Tom Hanks and Tim Allen got some sort of payday off of being attached to it. Like, that's why this thing is so expensive. But it's an expensive movie, so you have to clear five, six hundred to make Disney happy. In this case, I have no idea what any of these numbers mean. I guess finger in the wind, I'm going to rely on the old, if it makes 1.5x what it cost, then it made money. And if it didn't, it didn't. That's kind of the metric of what I'm going to use at all times, I think. Accounting for marketing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. At the same time, I'm not surprised that this one's sticking around because there is truly nothing in the theater that is approaching four quadrant because you've got Candyman, free guy paul patrol jungle cruise don't breathe Two, respect the suicide squad the protege the night house i don't know what the hell that is and old in the top 10 so i just nothing is in that has the same mass appeal of, as a jungle cruise that said, I am shocked that Reminiscence is number 11. Reminiscence plummeted. That's the Lisa Joy and that's uh, the West so Westworld creators, Hugh Jackman. Oh, Lisa Joy and the Nolan. Oh, yeah. yeah in HBO Max. That thing. It's been out two weeks and it was it opened to number at number nine and then dropped to number 11. I'm shocked that didn't perform at all. I remember seeing the trailer for the first time like three days before it came out. And I was yeah. like, this looks like my thing. Why didn't I not know about this? I guess they they knew. You know, it's like the the Mark Ruffalo quote from Spotlight. They knew! And they let it happen. Like, they just stop yeah. investing in it. They just give I up. Guess. No, I'm, I'm in, intrigued by it. I haven't seen it, but it... Hugh Jackman is my guy. I'm definitely seeing it, but... I mean, it, it feels like Christopher Nolan... Like breathed on a early thousand Spielberg project. That's what it looks like, and that's I'll watch that. Cool. <laughs> I mean, everything weird Hugh Jackman always takes me to the Tree of Life, but uh-huh. it has a couple of scenes in the trailer. Also, it's like him falling into this ethereal like pool or something. That's what it reminded me of. But anyway, sorry, reminiscence. Yes. Yeah, but that shocks me. But to anyway, there's nothing here that is for an entire family to watch. The only child-friendly thing in here is Paw Patrol, which is way too young for most people. So, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I guess kind of the, this came up as a story because it was officially announced that a sequel is in the works. And as listeners, you can probably tell, we are not exactly sure that 100 million domestically, I think there are like a 200-something global me like warrants that i do wonder if this is something that is as simple as dwayne johnson had a ton of fun doing it he did it with the director that he likes that he's wrapping up black adam for dc and he's just like this was fun i get to be on the spotlight i get to do a ton of instagram spots mm-hmm. i i don't have my own franchise i mean fast and furious not his franchise uh does he have any franchise uh, on, what about own? rampage or Jumanji. I can't, yeah. I guess. I, I can't. I'm trying to think of bad. Rampage doesn't have a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're saying the, the, the movies of The Rock Walks in the Jungle, which are like 
40,000 of them, but yes, um, including Jungle Cruise. But yeah, maybe maybe it's as simple as that, right? Like Disney likes having stars at the peak of their powers. Uh, seems fine. Yeah. As long as maybe uh, I do wonder if their budget is going to go down. Uh, but I think they're going to use a signal what you said. Hey, in this era where nothing matters and it's incredibly difficult to do anything for a movie that was released at home at the same time, we still did 200 and something. Seems still like a relatively strong story. Especially for a studio, you know, I've been quite bearish on live action Disney for a while. Mm-hmm. Especially for this type of movie. So it does sound like a relatively shiny spot, at least over the past like 10 years. Especially around this, you know, we want to make uh, kind of a franchise out of, whether yeah. it's like the Lone Ranger or the Cutter Stove or whatever. Uh, Artemis Fowl. Uh, <laughs> I guess Cruella is kind of also getting a sequel, but anyway. It's so difficult. We, we have entire episodes on this, but it's so difficult to parse the difference between their live action strategy and their franchise strategy and like actual original IP, which is few and far between in this mm-hmm. modern Disney. This is a good segue for me into my wow. So what? I am watching right now is I watched both Candyman movies for the first time this weekend. Both? Yeah. The original Candyman <laughs> and the new Candyman. Oh, you can tell how much I'm into horror. <laughs> yeah. In addition to that, I watched both Wicker Man movies as well. So Okay. So you're really spooked. I'm just in a, a horror mood. Candyman, original Candyman, great. It's it's an interesting object because it's definitely it has the same vibe as folk horror, like a Midsummer Wicker Man, which is why we watched two Wicker Man movies. It's very much folk horror, except set in Cabrini Green, which is a government project or a government housing project in what is now River North in Chicago. So it's bizarre because it's definitely it's like white people making a movie that's essentially folk horror with the black community in this poor area. But it's interesting and compelling and kind of sexy, too. Good, Great movie. Great Philip Glass score. The new one directly confronts all the kind of weird racial dissonance mm-hmm. that I, that premise desc- describes. I overall liked it a lot. I, I thought it was well made, and the score was the best one of the year so far this year to me. But ultimately, I didn't think the there were a lot of threads that it was pulling on. And it just feel, felt like it needed an extra 20 minutes to wrap them up. And it didn't have that. So good, promising film. I say it's a good segue because like every young director in Hollywood, director <laughs> Nia DaCosta, who made Candyman, is now shooting The Marvels, which is Captain America or Captain Marvel 2 plus Miss Marvel in a feature-length film for Marvel. So she leveled up. Good for Nia. Wow. Candyman's nice looking level up was a pun not really with marvel <laughs> more or less okay more or less well that's a good list i didn't i definitely didn't do as much horror as you did for me for the wahoo it was a travel weekend as well so i did godzilla versus kong it was kind of during the week and then yeah. i watched the last half of it on the plane yep eh, 
I don't get it. I think I'm probably in your camp. The best one is by far the first one. And then the yeah. second and the third one, like Godzilla versus... What's the second one? King of the Monsters. Oh, okay. They want to do everything in every single movie. Yeah. Everything. It's like, in this one, have you seen it? Probably not. The f I haven't seen the third one, now. Okay. I'm not going to. It's like this thing about an energy source and needing to go to, like, the center of the Earth. And then Kong goes there. Yeah. And then Godzilla makes a hole to the center of the Earth in, like, 30 seconds. And then Kong just goes from the center of the Earth to the regular Earth in another 30 seconds. And then there is this side story about Mega Godzilla. And it's like, can we... Can we just do Godzilla? Like, just do that. Just do that. There is, like, seven side stories about this family and this girl that communicates with Kong and this guy and his daughter who are looking for this energy source that's supposed to be in the center of the Earth. And I'm just like... Can we do, like... Godzilla versus Kong. Can you like make them fight? And it's a uh, yeah. He doesn't spend a lot of time fighting. The Gareth Edward film is like excuse me. It's this very tight and taut, like spooky movie about I don't know, creepy stuff happening and then you get dropped into San Francisco and you get to watch a bunch of monsters fight at the end. That's it. Where and then the second one is And kind of watch them fight at the end. Right. Before the it, like, bunker uses door closes really or well. whatever. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that movie. Whereas the, the second one is, well, what if we, instead of just building tension for the first hour and a half and then letting them fight for 15 minutes, what if we give you two hours of lore that you don't care about and then let them fight, kind of? I, I don't know. The second one is one of the most terrifically boring movies I have ever seen. So I have no interest in watching the third one. <laughs> yeah, save it. Cool. And then I cleanse my palate by watching... the. Mo I was going to say the most palate-cleansing movie of them all. But, like, what's the most... Yeah, I'm going to just leave it at that. After that feeling, you're like, I want to cleanse my palate. And I want to watch just a delightful movie. Just, just delightful. What movie do you think I watch next? I think Delightful is the perfect description for this movie. And I know you know what it is, and I know you like it, so... I think the most delightful movie of all time. Like, probably top ten on your list. Is it Wally? No. Oh, is that's a good Pixar? guess. No, no Pixar. Not cartoon. Not cartoon. Oh, I mean, you're in the right track in terms of, like, kids' movie. Yes. But not only. Okay. Give me another hint. You really like it. This is more unbelievable than I thought. <laughs> Paddington? Paddington 2. Okay, cool. Yes. Okay, it wasn't that bad. I thought Barry was going to be like, I know Carl, he's going to know Paddington 2. Yeah, it was perfect. Literally, the credits started rolling, and it was one of those old United flights that were like, oh, and if you move to Channel 7, Paddington 2 starting. I'm like, yes. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Which was great. Um, moving along on my succession rewatch. Cool. And I can't stop watching because I need to talk to my Mexican directors. Um, Maya and the Three, which is a new project by Jorge Gutierrez, who is the director yeah. and creator of The Book of Life. Very cool. You should watch the trailer. It looks great. I will he does cool out. stuff with, with Mexican folklore. Nice. So, cool. But just the trailer for now.
All right. You want to lead us into Netflix? Wait, what do we have? What was the last one? Oh, oh it's 24 Arcs. minutes. We should, you want to just go into Netflix already? We're at 24. Let's, let's go into Netflix and we can talk parks next week. Okay. Speaking of, even though we didn't say it out loud, Maya and the Three is coming out of Netflix. Speaking of Netflix, our, I guess, mini main topic of the week is that um, last week it was CinemaCon, which is, you know, it's kind of a place where the movie industry gets together, which is a, a good excuse for media analysts to get to Las Vegas and use it as an excuse to meet with a lot of folks from the different from the different studios. And one of the interesting things that come out of it is that Netflix is looking to do more theatrical releases for their big movies in order to, and I want to make sure I don't botch this because this is just mwah, because, quote, Netflix desires its movies to have a bigger cultural impact. So, first question. Does Netflix listen to our podcast? Second question. I'm very curious for your take of how they connected the way for our movies to have more cultural impact is for them to having a regular theatrical release, because I think there is a lot to unpack there. Well, I would love to use this as an opportunity to opportunity to gloat to <laughs> listeners, <coughs> Kevin, <laughs> who have tried to convince me that Netflix has oh, a great cultural please. footprint. <laughs> Don't leave me out of this. <laughs> Yes, us. You're correct. Thank you. The vindication, it's an internal feeling, so that's why I'm not speaking for you here. But I get it. Yeah, for sure. us. Like, yeah, these movies don't have any cultural footprint. Especially, I love that list they trot out, where it's like Extraction and The Old Guard are like two of the highest grossing films of all time. It's like, do you know anybody who's... Okay, maybe they've watched them, but nobody talks about them. The only ones that Kate talked about are to all, to all the boys you loved before, to all the boys have loved before, and the big auteur movies that like somebody defends, you know, like your Romas. Your Roma, Irishman. the Irishman. Yeah. yeah. Right. Not that, even Mank, who came out last. Yeah, that was the latest. A Mank has very little cultural footprint. <laughs> and. Yeah, their their shows do. The original series do. They dominate the conversation. But it's this whole binge release flare-up strategy. This summer they tried to do like an event, kind of bridging the difference with the Fear Street movies and kind of do like, what if we drop three movies at once that are all interconnected that seem to have done okay for them, but even then that's not driving the cultural conversation. So it's becoming this very expensive calculus to them of, if we spend $100 million on a movie, or if we spend $20 million on a movie, how many hours of TV would that get us, which is technically longer engagement? It's all a game with your money of how much time you're purchasing from somebody else with your money. And movies just mm -hmm. don't have that. But they do if they drive cultural conversation. Everybody's coming to Netflix to watch them. But that's not what their movies were doing. And that's what drives me to the, the second question, which is, it is very interesting that, and I know, you know, this is reading exactly what we want to hear and via the analyst, but it's like, oh, for sure. In my mind, like, if you go like to what we've said, I don't think we've ever said that the reason Netflix is not having a cultural impact, their movies, is because they don't have a theatrical release. 
At least I no. don't think we have. Like, I, I agree that there is a dimension. There is something about a movie being out and people watching it over a month and a half instead of over a weekend that makes it feel like it's in the conversation. But to your point, if it was Extraction or The Old Garth, first of all, how many people have gone to watch it, which is the, the biggest right. unknown of them all forever. But then if you keep doing bad movies, not great movies, okay, fine, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, that that doesn't mean they're going to have a bigger, a bigger cultural impact just because of being in the theaters. It's because you need to make better movies. And you need to make movies that, for me, it's always been, we've talked about Netflix is a game of niches in general. And then they have these these B ones that are, that attract a lot of people. But if you keep doing these niches, you don't drive conversations that become, you know, right general in society. And then the question becomes: If let's say the part of the calculus is we're gonna make better movies, I don't know that the calculus then it's put it on the theaters. It's actually the opposite. So I'm like this. This is like uh, I hate the get a cake and eat it too again, but. This is this is backwards. I feel like they, they, they saw a point and they just flew past it. This is the same stupid, like, that NATO press release that we were <laughs> ragging yes. on a few weeks ago where they were, like, I whining that Black Widow killed theaters. Yeah, right. Before the press release that they were leaving Afghanistan, right? Let's, let's make the two <laughs> press releases about NATO. Yeah? Yes. I'm going to die on this joke. Yes. It's a good bet. Yeah, the, the theater owners... And distributors want theatrical releases because that is how, okay, as much as I like a movie theater and as much as I am not here for the consolidation of media into five companies that own everything horizontally and horizontally and vertically. That said, in modern Hollywood distribution, these companies are coming in, and just because they have weird rental properties that are useless for anything else, which a bunch of screens in them, they have the right to scoop 50% of the ticket sale off of a film. Mm -hmm. And without a theatrical distribution, they don't get to scoop 50% of the ticket price off of a film. Like... I'm here for theaters. I want theaters to survive. I even think theaters should be able to take that much. But theater chains are so skewed to be to want theatrical distribution to continue living because it's free money for them. They don't have to work to make their theaters anything but a crappy room with a projector in it instead of something that people want to spend their time at. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, I don't, I mean, there wasn't a lot of information here. We don't know if, Part of that is that they're going to be exclusive. It means they're going to be in both. And they're just going to do continue to do this one to two week New York and LA release for Oscars. I fail to get it. I don't know if it's one of those things where it's like in the, in the subconscious of companies, mm-hmm. you end up moving. You end up. It's not moving towards the mainstream. I'm like missing the... It's been a long Monday. Um, it's like you, you end up falling for thinking that your way of thinking is the right way of thinking, regardless yeah. of the outcome that you get to. So because they know they think they're right... I mean, I guess this is human for everything, right? We were so yeah. right on streaming, and we know we we're right on streaming. Now, 
we, we, us, we go to the decision of starting with streaming and then going to theatrical release for the biggest makes sense. When in reality, it's like, well, there could be a reason why everyone was doing it like that all the time. And why you coming this way is taking kind of the wrong signal from the market. And I, I don't want to read as much into this again because we don't have all of the information. But I fail I fail to see how this plays with their with their long term strategy. I just don't Eitan, see it. you have it wrong. Reed Hastings had a master plan when he started his <laughs> DVD by mail business to create streaming video over the internet and eventually dominate the market and then go into theaters afterwards. This was all part of the plan from day one. You just have it wrong. Exactly, because this is this feels like, yeah, in 20 years, they're going to be a regular studio. And it was just the way to scale it and get there. It was via streaming. If you follow this string three years, they're going to be a, an HBO Max, Warner Media, or Disney Plus, Disney mm-hmm. thing. Our biggest things are going there. Our not biggest things are in streaming. And ah, we found a place where we can maximize revenue. And if you get bored watching our movie, you can just play Angry Birds for free or whatever. <laughs> well, they now have a chief merchandising officer, no? We talked about it a couple of months ago. That's true. Maybe do, this yeah. is all part of... Exactly. Maybe the plan is they just want to become a merchandising company. And the way to do that is via theatrical releases. You hadn't thought about that. Hmm? I hadn't thought about that. These steps only make sense in hindsight, Carl. <laughs> just, just wait. <laughs> just you wait. In all seriousness here, one of the great ironies here is that everyone talks about how Netflix alternatively saved and or killed the mid-budget film because mid-budget films don't go to theaters anymore. They go to Netflix, what have you. That's not really the case. Netflix killed DVD sales. DVD mm-hmm. sales were a nice little kicker on the end of a theatrical release that allowed some movies to make even more money and some movies, like your your Fight Clubs or your Donnie Darko's or Name a Nancy Myers movie, like to have a long the shelf life. Be. Yeah, like these cult movies or these like mid-budget rom-coms to either have a long life in rental or like somebody buys it because it's $10 and they want to see that movie. Netflix kills that, and that kills the ancillary revenue stream that enabled the mid-budget movie to survive from the mid-90s through the, the early 2000s. So all, mm-hmm. like, but the thing is there, going back to the theater's not going to do anything, because it might bump up the cultural imp- footprint, but a lot of the movies that are on Netflix are movies that would have not made any money in theaters to begin with 20 years ago. They would have just gone to DVD or VHS eventually found a calling, which is where they're going to be there. So to your point here, the strategy only makes sense if they're going for blockbusters, which they kind of are, but they're not fully committing, and a lot of their blockbusters seem like they're knockoffs of other blockbusters. Right now. Yeah. I do wonder if this is something that is coming up after the fact with the deals for things like the Knives Out of the world. Yeah, could be. Which is like, this is just like, yeah, we made a decision a couple of years ago, but yeah, Knives Out 2 is coming out in theaters. But because there are two other things here in the in the article that are kind of like, there are two things, and I would love to get your reaction. The first one is, it talks about how it, this didn't make sense before because it was you know around 90 days theatrical window, yeah. and now it's 45, mm-hmm. which I'm like, again, okay, 
but for something to leave for 45 days and then people not be willing to wait till they're available in Netflix for free, it has to be a good movie, which, again, not part of the question here. Yeah. And then the second part that they talk about is, which I feel like here they talk about this, you'll see what I'm going to say, but they talk about this thing if this is a result, when I feel like this is the cause, mm-hmm. and it's they talking about marketing. And they're yep. saying that if they do a theatrical release, then they're going to spend 50% of the budget in marketing. And that's how it's, why it's going to have a cultural impact. I'm like, well, why don't you do that for Netflix? Like, Right, yeah. What does that have to do with anything? If you want people to watch your movie... And it's like, well, the the article goes on to say, like, because it's condensed and you want people to go see it in theaters before it goes for free, you condense the marketing so that all the viewership happens in the first four weeks. And I'm like... Extraction, the old guard, Lady Lady Box. What was the name? Bird Box. <laughs> Lady Box. I always confuse Lady Bird and Bird Box. <laughs> Bird Box. <Lady laughs> with Sirisha with Sirisha Bullock. The the kind of what we was like, who watches these movies after five weeks yeah. that they came out? I I wonder if part of this is because Netflix's like magical bullshit factory tactics are being used by everyone now, so they don't make sense anymore. Because they're bullshit factory. <laughs> for when they would release movies pre-pandemic, they would four-wall the theater where they would go to a smaller theater chain like a landmark that was willing to sell their soul to Netflix and say, "Hey, we will buy out one movie theater in your theater for a month engagement, buy all the tickets, and then." You just funnel the proceeds back to us if people buy tickets. Uh, but we, we don't have to release any numbers. You're getting all your money. Congrats. But now, like you said, the window is smaller. So Netflix no longer has, I think, this worry where they were, like, okay, if we release something in theaters, we can't put, put it on streaming for three months. Now it's a month and a half or even shorter, potentially, if they negotiate it right. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But also, Disney can say, we made $30 million on Jungle Cruise and $30 million on Premier Access and $30 million internationally, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas all Netflix can say, based on their existing business model, is we wasted a bunch of money four-walling a theater. We don't have incremental sales of new releases, which maybe they would, but I don't think Netflix would ever do that here. I think they would just keep it right. up. Yeah. But we don't have incremental sales, but trust us, somebody watched two minutes of this, and that equals a $2 billion movie. I think they just, they can't, I've seen more and more analysts start to sour on Netflix, and I think this is why, because it's just, these numbers, when you have other apples-to-apples comparison truly cannot hold up based on the cultural conversation that they have. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the conversation that we had a couple of months ago now of the benefits of like uh, binge releasing or waiting week to week, even if it was all in streaming. And we were saying that it's something that Disney can do because they're very comfortable in knowing that most people are going to follow every week, right? Even if it's a Mandalorian season two and they lose Carl, most of the people are going to watch it. They're not going to fall off either because it's things that they want to catch up with, even if it's bad, or because it's good. And a benefit of the binge release of Netflix, which includes this 
season packing episodes in the middle of a season that are just terrible mm -hmm. is that people are willing to go through it because it's like, well, everything is available. I'm just going to watch everything, right? right. I'm going to watch it before I hear from Carl that it's actually awful or whatever. And then suddenly, again, with these movies, you kind of, what's the saying? You end up making your bed and sleeping on it or what's what's that? Is that a yeah, saying? You, you make your bed and you sleep at it, yeah. Okay. They're gonna Close they're enough. gonna make yeah. their sleep and yeah perfect and sleep in it in the sense of yeah if something is not good you're gonna get the worst of all wars of both worlds yeah. you're not gonna get a good theatrical kickback and then nobody's gonna watch it and you're gonna drive yep. zero engagement so I also wonder the part that I'm curious is how late in the development process are they gonna start making these decisions in terms of quality which is, leads me to my last question that I have for you written down in my doc. Do you think in the way movies are developed, this is actually something that is doable? Where you, or, or at what stage you have to say, yeah, this movie is going here or here? Is there enough? Let me rephrase the question. At what time as a studio do you have a hunch if a movie is going to be successful or not? I don't want to say good. Mm. There are movies that might not be good that are successful that could drive this decision. You think we're going to get a, from, a, a trailer from Netflix of Knives Out, you know, a teaser nine months before that says coming to theaters only or six months before that says coming to theaters only? Or are they going to want to hedge their bets and wait until, you know, it, they're at least in production and they kind of see how things are looking? I don't think they need to really, unless it's a big tentpole thing, they don't need to stake their claim in the ground. People move release dates all the time. Like, obviously, you have Disney who has a release calendar for the next 10 years of untitled... Yeah. Captain Marvel number four or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. they just have all this stuff out there. So they state their claims. So everyone kind of knows to avoid or to counter program. But that said, uh, the typical production process involves a lot of meetings and a lot of watches and a lot of screenings. And the traditional studio process is showing these movies to test audiences a year before they come out in like some sort of shape. That's not perfect, but it's far enough along that it makes narrative sense and is kind of the cohesive film. And that's what you do here, I think, is you just testing becomes more important. You maybe do some testing at home with people and you just try and figure out, like, is this something where people are excited about it, that they might have word of mouth, or is this something that ultimately they just put on streaming? It's going to be so interesting. It is. Because also, couldn't this mean... I don't think they're going to start with this, but let's say Sony buys a movie that is not yeah. theirs, and they license it. I'm sure now they're going to have to be specific about... Yeah, this might include a theatrical release. And it might say Sony. Well, no, Sony made a point about theatrical release. It might say Paramount or whatever. Or whoever it's still licensing movies directly to streaming. I have no idea. COVID is a weird world. I I bet that we're going to see this whole COVID fire sale thing evaporate a little bit. My, my hunch is that this whole analyst report is more about the quote-unquote Netflix originals that are very yeah, 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 I would infrequently tied to, to studio releases. It's not going to be like they buy Mitchell's versus the machine and decide that you need to put it in theater. I don't think Netflix <laughs> is going to act as a distribution company. For anybody's stuff except their own. And 
on top of that, they do have two movie theaters as well. They have the Paris and New York, and they have the Egyptian. I believe they've closed on the Egyptian now in, in L.A. So they, they do have their own space, but the problem with that is those are like big film nerd theaters in big film nerd cities, and people are not going to go see like Fear Street 3 or whatever at the American Cinematheque, probably. I agree, but let's take that uh, level deeper. Okay. I know this is a generalization, but I'm going to I'm going to generalize the whole media entertainment company into two axioms or whatever. Cool. I am the best at identifying talent or okay. stories, and two, I am the best at developing those. Yes. Okay. So, if Netflix and every other studio is built on those two, And Netflix is especially built on the first one. Yeah. They are now built on the on the second one, but they're still betting at least fifty percent of their of their content on getting it from somebody else. Why would you limit yourself to saying this is only Netflix original? It's all a brand play. It's all an ego play. If yeah. there is a movie that you find and you believe in your heart that you're the, this is a movie that you've identified that has been mischaracterized by the market, that shouldn't stop you from playing it in theaters, if that's the best decision for your business. I guess in their mind is, no, we're building the brand that in the long term is going to be better for my business, but it does it does feel a little bit, not counter, no. but they've been like very thorough, right? This is what we do. We know exactly what the audience wants, and we're going to get there either because we're going to do it ourselves or because we're going to acquire it. Yeah. And if now they're expanding it and they're saying, and now we're also going to have different distribution options, it kind of makes sense to follow that. Again, from a marketing perspective, a yeah. marketer might hit me in the head. I, I see your point. I think I buy it. I think just in general, the product they're purchasing is going to be become increasingly less predicated on the major studios. If not because Netflix isn't willing to buy it, it's because every single one of them except Sony has a streaming platform that they can just do that themselves with and sony has a pretty robust robust distribution arm themselves that they can handle the for theatrical sure. release but sure. i could i could totally see a world in which they come to terms and like hey netflix we're bringing you on as a streaming distributor and we're gonna do this theatrical and netflix demands a, a cut of the profits i i could see that happening yeah. more and more and hey that diversifies netflix's revenue stream which is the existential have a huge them. issue yeah yeah, it just I have a perfect uh, sports analogy. The Red Sox in baseball uh -huh. just traded for a pitcher that in paper is very bad. Okay. But it's a pitcher that is not in the major leagues. And it's after this deadline where you can just trade for players in the regular way. Yeah. And everyone is angry in Twitter. And it's like, why are they trading for such a bad pitcher? And I'm like, and the, I think the smart people on Twitter, not that I'm saying that I'm smart, are saying... What did you expect that now at the bottom of the pit of the rubbish at the worst time of the year, you can just trade for an amazing feature? Yeah. Like, that's exactly the point. So I think that goes to your point of, like, if somebody knows somebody's good, why would they sell it? Yeah. Right? But it does come to the point of, well, Netflix is known for overspending and paying a lot sure. for the things that they believe in. So Netflix, if you're listening in and that's why you made this change to us, Either to prove us right or to prove us wrong, and then just laugh in our face, in our faces, 
I encourage you to explore also releasing in theaters things that you license and not only your originals. And hey, uh, if this works out, then come back to us and give us 200k salaries and we'll come join you. <laughs> that wouldn't be bad either. But until then, we're going to sit on the sidelines and mock your decisions. <laughs> Which is like a great way to get them to pay us. Right? Just mock them. Yeah, this this whole podcast respectfully, is just about, respectfully. Yeah, this whole podcast is about negging Netflix into giving us a job. That's all this is. <laughs> okay, so we've expanded to being invited to the Star Wars hotel for free and negging Netflix to get a job. I just want to yes. make sure I keep track of the project. Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. That makes sense. We're we're negging the Galactic Star Cruiser to get an invite, and then now we're negging Netflix to get a job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's pretty great. Police. You want to do a UAs? You I don't have one. Do you have one? I can come up with one. Cool. Oh, yes, I have one. Go for it. So I just moved into my place like a month ago. And I something that I didn't do that I usually like to do is kind of mark the first, the first X, the first Y, the first time we cooked. Oh, why did we cook? Blah, blah. Yeah. Very on brand. Do you have any movie that you would like to commemorate you getting a home in a couple of weeks to be Ooh. your first. If not, like think here with me, what would it be? Or like what would be the criteria on which you would choose one to mark the first um, movie you watch on a new house? Oh, I'm moving to San Francisco. And mm -hmm. I have a very, very soft spot for a quite a few San Francisco films. Mm -hmm. So the Ant only... Yeah. The only no? okay, not not Ant Man. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Shang Chi and the Ten Rings. Yes, there we oh, go. Perfect. Yep. The, you, you got me. Okay. Uh, actually, Venom. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are a lot of very weird of culture movies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm gonna stop. San Andreas. <laughs> Moneyball. Okay, you're getting you're getting closer. Okay, okay. Zodiac. There. Okay, you're you're in spitting distance here. So okay. the the only answer is one of Alex and I's like top three one of, favorite films. Oh, is it one that is also my top three? Probably not. No, it's okay. not the Social Network. No, no, no. I was gonna say the Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's not the Last Black Man in San Francisco. That would be a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I started bad. Now I ended up in the right track. It's Vertigo. Mm -hmm. We adore Vertigo. It's a very meaningful film to both of us. It's a very, well, it's, it is romantic, but it's disturbed in, in how romantic it is. So it'll be Vertigo. We just It has to be Vertigo. But ultimately, yeah, I'm going to definitely go through a rabbit hole of the great SF movies like your, like The Conversation or Zodiac or The Game or... I was just saying the social network. There's a lot of Fincher movies that take place in San Francisco. I guess it makes sense. He's from Marin, but yeah, it's gonna be for it's gonna be Vertigo, and then we'll go from there. That makes sense because I was thinking for me from Boston, it might be Goodwill Hunting. Listen, I really like the town. There's got to be a Ben Affleck movie. Yeah, I mean, of course, but Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner with their Boston accents is great. Mystic River is one of those first movies that I remember being like, 
oh my god a movie yeah. can make me feel this and the other day i drove by mystic river like the mystic river area for the yeah. first time i've never been there i was like oh my god mystic river i haven't watched it um but yeah the town i mean the departed <laughs> of course uh what's the what's the name of the jimmy fallon and Drew drew barrymore one uh you, you do you know, know about this movie uh, I do not know about Fever Beach, Fever Beach, Fever Beach. It's supposed Road to take runners? place on the year when uh, the Red Sox win the World Series, and it has like a whole scene in Fenway Park with Drew Barrymore jumping into the game in like the World Series. It has sixty-five in Rotten Tomatoes. That's more than I thought. Similar to Jungle Cruise. Well, I think we should both watch The Social Network because it's a Boston movie and a San Francisco movie. I was gonna say probably my favorite. <laughs> scene of the social network especially in combination of cinematography and mm-hmm. uh, score is the rowing oh. session from the Winklevoss twins yeah absolutely fantastic super great I don't have an AUA for you this week it's fine we'll keep it clean cool you get you get one next week yeah there we go I will have one next week well not next week, because as a reminder, we are going on hiatus for a full week. <laughs> Happy Labor Day to those. It's it's more, it's just Aton's family's coming me. in. I, I'm visiting my family. It's Aton's birthday. I'm moving. Aton's wrapping up moving. We are taking a one-week vacation. It's, it's Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year's, so I have to eat it a lot of apple. Yep. Well, I'm sad that this year I will not be driving around the entire Bay Area looking for kosher wine, only to be offered bacon when I come to your Rosh Hashanah yeah. party. I love that story. Oh, I forget. <laughs> we have bacon for Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, I'm uh, Jewish. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, we'll be we'll be in touch uh, in a couple of weeks. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to rate, review, subscribe. Let us know if you like these kind of shorter episodes. We're also kind of uh, tinkering with the format. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye, everyone.